everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Match Slip Podcast. My name is Frank Angeloni. I am your host. And on today's show, we're interviewing Gnome Games, located in Wisconsin, with store owner Pat. Pat, how are you doing today? Pretty good, Frank. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. So, Pat, I know you have multiple locations in Wisconsin for your store. How did that all come to be? And what is your particular role in the day-to-day operations of the store? Well, uh, how about if I answer those backwards? Um, I'm the head gnome. I'm the owner of the company. So my role is to give all of my locations and my warehouse direction and guidance and help them to put games on the tables at all of our locations. I do a lot of the ordering, a lot of the upper level management, so to speak, with hiring and firing and and planning, training the, the managers and the staff to do their jobs. And what was your first location when you first started with the store? Our location, first location opened uh, 20 years ago in a very small location, about 1,200 square feet in on the east side of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Okay, so you've been in business then for quite some time running the store. Yes, um, we're just celebrating our 20th year, and we look forward to another 20. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. How did the coming abouts of opening multiple store locations come to existence? Like, cause I know most, you know, local game stores can only afford to have one location. What was the ensuing turn of events that allowed that to happen? Um, what we learned is something we created in our business plan was that we wanted to have people in the stores playing games all the time. And, and way back in ancient history in 2003, that really wasn't a big thing. Um, we dedicated 50% of our entire space to play space and we were full every every night of the week every weekend pretty much from when we opened and the green bay community has a river down the center and it might as well be the rocky mountains and quite a few of our customers were across that river and they didn't like crossing it so um, in march of 2004 we said well let's let's open another store so we opened a store on the west side of of green bay right in the shadow of lambeau field and that's where that's pretty much our flagship store Um, we set that up with two suites side by side and dedicated one of those to organized play. And ever since that, that's kind of been our model. Um, It's evolved significantly over the last five years for sure to more experiential retail, uh, more experiential play. The days of the three and 400 player tournaments, I'm not saying they're gone, but they're not what makes our business run strong. I see. So you have certain stores are more retail than play space. Is that correct? That's correct. What we try to do when we go into a community is we try to create a flagship experience, one store that has it all and also has organized play in it. And then our smaller stores try to to be that friendly little neighborhood game store where we can seat maybe 30, 35 people um, and provide them with a quality experience. But we still have the muscle of, of a bigger brand so we can get them everything that we would have at the flagship store in a day or two in the day or two of business days. So they get the opportunity to purchase things that a lot of smaller stores can't provide. Very interesting. So where did the store's origin story come about? Like what made you want to open a store, let alone, you know, the four you have now? And do you see in the future the potential for adding any more stores? Because it definitely seems like your store is doing well, which is great to hear. It's something, you know, I personally always like to hear game stores doing well. But where did the um, store idea come about? What made you want to get involved in the business from the start? Well, in the 1990s and even before then, I was a big role player. Um, I played D&D, Living Force, Living Greyhawk, Living City. And my wife and I ran events for the students at the local university on a regular basis. So we would seat many conventions pretty much every other weekend throughout the school year at the University of Wisconsin. And we saw that there was a need for a good quality game store in the area that wasn't just about, at that time, was a little bit of Pokemon, a little bit of magic, and really not much else. So when it came time for me to retire from the military in 2003, Uh, My wife had this genius idea that we would open a game store. And I said, okay, we'll we'll open a game store. We'll do it right. And then I, in the back of my mind, I figured, well, you know, I've got a full military retirement. I can go back to work. And that's 20 years ago. So it's worked out pretty well. But it's all evolved out of that desire 
to to fill the need of social gaming experiences at the table, whether it's the role playing like we started with and we did a lot of organized play to the card games, to the miniature games, to what's evolved now, the social board game, tabletop board gaming. Um, it's all about that experience at the table and it's what we try to provide at every opportunity that we can. It's great to hear that you've been able to accomplish all this. And first, I also want to say thank you for your service to the country as well. Thank you. So with the games that you offer, and you mentioned board games being one of the more popular ones along with miniatures, out here on Long Island in, in New York, I'm not too familiar with the miniatures. I mean, I, I do think of D&D along those lines. From your standpoint, with, the, with, with offering the play spaces, are the board games the most popular form of play that you see at the store? Um, in the store, we see pretty much like a, a, a 30, 30, 30 split. Um, Role-playing hasn't come back yet, but I'd like to, we'll see it come back now that, that, that COVID is finished or is, is mitigated. Um, what we see right now is a, at across the board, about 25% of our players are playing those, those board games, and it's not any particular game. It's more of a variety, and we've got some folks that play the more advanced, the, the tougher games, you know, all the way out to Twilight Imperium. But a lot of it is that short-term play of Castle Panic, Taco Cat, Go Cheese Pizza, um, Danger, you know, a lot of those lighter games that they'll be played for half an hour or 45 minutes. Hey, we had a good time. And our, our, our cafe model at our Sturgeon Bay location has really proven to be probably the direction that we're going to head with um, a lot of our efforts going forward. So if you could talk a little bit about how the players have shaped what games you offer, because you mentioned you like to get into the role-playing games, which is kind of what started the business plan from the early days. And I'm personally not too familiar with role-playing games. I tend to play, you know, Magic the Gathering is the game I play. And so how did that kind of surface, like from the player demand for wanting that? Would you say that those type of games, role-playing, D&D, or what your store kind of specializes in, or do you also see things carry over into the TCG world too? What we learned, and, and we knew this going in, is we needed to listen to the people in the community. We kind of knew role-playing pretty well, um, having done it for a long time and, and you know knew how to run it. But um, we learned something in the first couple of months that there are games out there that we know absolutely nothing about, and that's okay. We don't have to know anything about it. We just have to learn enough about that to be fluent in them to provide a great service to our customers. I had uh, some guys that came in and, and asked, hey, would you guys run some events for a game called Legend of the Five Rings? And I said, sure. Well, you know, I didn't know what L5R was, but we embraced it. We learned about it. And that evolved and, and helped us grow the community very quickly. And it also taught us how to listen to our customers, how to get the good stuff out of the chaff, because there, there's a lot of times that, that there's the vocal minority wants to do things that really aren't good for business or good for the community. And learned, we really learned how to grow the community. At one point in time, um, our little tiny store in Green Bay was the number one store on the planet for L5R, primarily because of the community that was generated because we listened. And that's always very key in business is to listen to what the customers want. That definitely helps grow in the business. And as, as we see from, you know, your four stores, it's, it's very self-explanatory that it's, it's working. So what is L5R? Um, it's not something that's popular out by me. No, L5R is actually what we call a dead game. Um, it, it ceased to exist after Asmodee took it over four or five years ago. And they, they, they canned it, uh, I believe they ended it in December of last year. That one is not an active title. What we look at with L5R is how we grew the community. We did the same thing for a lot of the role-playing games, like when D&D 3.5 came out, Pathfinder came out. And we took the same principles and applied it to, to the card games like Pokemon Magic, um, Weiss Schwartz. Um, it's, it's a matter of being able to apply those lessons to the individual community and providing them with the experience. Excellent. And are you providing games for people to play every day throughout the week? Is there certain days where that doesn't take place? Because I know different stores have different scheduling of how they do their gameplay space. Our goal is to have somebody playing a game from open to close seven days a week. We try to orchestrate our in-store organized play and social play calendars 
to make that work and complement what the play patterns of the community in, in around those stores is. For example, in our Appleton store, we know that the 40K players, the Warhammer 40K players, really like to get together on Saturdays and another night during the week. So that's kind of their day. You know, we don't, don't want to steal that from them. Uh, Wizards of the Coast did a great thing many years ago that they kind of have stumbled on over the last year or two with the Friday Night Magic. That used to be the night of the week for everybody in the world to play. Smartest thing that Wizards ever did was create that. And by by doing that, they told the world that this was their night where everybody in the world could go to a game store that had magic and could play. Now it's got a little bit muddy. They They've broken it up a little bit. But that's the type of thing that we like to do. Um, you know, we, our customers know that Sunday afternoons at most of the stores is Yu-Gi-Oh! Day. So we've got Yu-Gi-Oh! being played. And it's that consistency so that a new player knows that they can go to the store at that point in time and find somebody that shares the enjoyment in the game that they like. Is there something you feel that Wizards of the Coast could do to maybe rekindle that Friday Night Magic marketing campaign that they used so well back in the day? Well, if I if I had their ear, I would say step back and look at what Mr. Dancy did in his research, why it worked, research the science of fandom and create those special events. There's too many events out there too often, and it just is a very muddy landscape out there. There's not a lot of direction as to this is the big thing I need to do this week. So if they can create a single day that has that focus or, re or rekindle that Friday night magic to bring the casual player to the table, that would be the best way I would see doing it to grow the game. I, I know I've heard some other people say online, particularly through YouTube, that one of the things that really drew people into the stores for Friday night magic at the time was the quality of the promos that they used to release at that point in time. Like they, you know, highly played used cards that people wanted was one piece that drove people into the stores. And that seems to be something that's not as prevalent as it once was. Do you notice anything from that from your side of the coin? We were able to harvest, for lack of a better term, a lot of promos throughout history. And we still do that for our Commander Knights. You come in, you're going to get a pull from the promo boot. Some of those are going to be older promos. Some of those are going to be stuff that we've acquired from other stores or whatever. We never sell promos in our company. It's something that we're known for. But Wizards of the Coast really could do us all a really nice favor by bringing back Friday Night Magic promos, making it a very set thing that, hey, we've got Friday Night Magic. You come, you play, you get a promo. Go ahead and limit it to one promo per customer per month. Our customers won't care as long as they know they're going to get that one promo. Um, right now, Wizards seems to be promo heavy with a lack of directions on how you can use those promos other than you got to use it probably here at this time, but it's at your discretion and you could use it anytime during this month. And then you got to wait 90 days to bring it out again. It, it really lacks clarity and direction and it also lacks unity of message to the consumer because of the retailers not being able to do or not being required to use it in a specific way. There's no knowledge as to if I go to a store, come out to Long Island and play. I don't know where I'm going to see those promos being used. And that's that's what Wizards really needs to get their, their act around if they want to unify the community. Yeah, it sounds like a very smart business decision for them to make. So how did you acquire these older promos? Is this just a collection of promos that you've had over the course of time? One of the things that Wizards used to do is they used to reward player attendance. And we have some phenomenal player attendance over the years with, with multiple locations. And so we would get stacks of, you know, on, on a release, 200, 300 promos. And you'll see a lot of stores tend to, oh my gosh, I can siphon these off and dump them on TCG player or whatever. We never did that. We, we put them away. We didn't give out four to anybody. You know, we limited the exposure of, of those promos to our customers in a way that allowed us to keep them back and use them for a longer period of time. I've got probably another six months worth of them to, to go through for our Commander League, maybe a little bit less if it continues to pick up. And I'm not sure what we'll do after that, but it does allow us to extend that unity of, hey, every, every Monday night at the Gnome Game stores when there's Commander, I can come in and get a pull from the boot. And you have the promos available for all the stores? Because I, I know you're mentioning earlier that some are more a little bit more retail than they are play space, but you're able to do that amongst all four of the stores? 
Yes. Um, the way we do it is if you come in and you play, you know, it doesn't just show up. You got to play. You got to participate. The the promo harvesters, I don't want to say they're not welcome at my stores, but if you're coming in, hey, I you got to give me a promo. No, I don't have to give you a promo unless it's required by the manufacturer. And if you're not a customer and not going to shop, you're not going to get it uh, or not going to play. You're not going to get it. So all of we, we spread those across the company. We use it for new player growth or new new community growth in when we open a new store, things like that. That makes sense. I mean, it, it avoids people just, you know, flipping them online when really the promos are meant for people that are coming into play. That's a good policy to have. So from your interest in role-playing games from when you first started getting into playing to then eventually opening the store, I was curious if you have the time, and I'm sure it's probably limited at, the, at this at this point with managing and overseeing four stores. Do you have the time in, in any of your like free time to, to play any of these games like you used to? Um, not as much as I used to. Uh, I have to schedule it more. I really enjoy playing the games. We, we have a, a vi- vibrant community outreach program. So I'll go out to schools and churches and, and play games with kids and families um, and adults on a pretty regular basis. But as far as my personal enjoyment, I'll be down at Gen Con. I'll be playing, you know, D&D for the better part of three days. And, and then that'll give me my fix for six or eight months. That's very cool. So outside of Gen Con, what other events have you brought the business to, like to help draw, whether it be traffic sales to the business, uh, brand recognition, what other types of events have you went to? Um, well, we have our community outreach program where we're out in schools over 100 nights a year, um, where we literally pack up a small store and a whole bunch of demo games. And we go to mil- middle schools, elementary schools, high schools, and we play games with the families after, after school or, or in the evenings. That's been extremely instrumental to us being top of mind for game stores in northeastern Wisconsin. You know, we're out there with with it, that strong brand and having fun bringing games to people who typically aren't gamers. Then we also have a convention outreach program where rather than going to a convention, setting up a booth and, and you know, selling across a table, what we do is we offer conventions, small and mid-sized conventions, a plug-and-play solution to manage their tabletop operation. So basically we come in, we set up the entire tabletop room, we schedule the events for them, we host the events, whether it's Pokemon League or Commander tournaments or board game events, and then it's a complete experience that we can provide to a convention that they don't need to worry about all of the logistics and managing a game library and things like that. And I remember you telling me not too long ago, you were coming back from, I believe it was called Astra. Is that correct? Yes. I, I came back from Astra last week. And that's the American Specialty Toy Retailers Association. That's a big buyer uh, convention where we get to go see all the non-hobby industry games, you know, things like What Do You Meme and, and some of the more mainstream uh, social gaming stuff um, and some of the toys too. You know, I got to hug Squishable, so it was a good trip. That's great. And you mentioned with, you know, doing these outreach type of things to bring in potential non-gamers into the store. How do you notice the difference between new and returning players and potentially even taking some of those new players that may not be gamers and getting them to become gamers and play in the store? What is your, from a, whether it be a marketing or a sales standpoint, how do you go about acquiring those new customers? The first thing that we try to do at at all levels is break down that barrier communication. So our staff are are trained to communicate at a base level so the customer feels comfortable and saying, hey, I don't know how to play that green game over there, but it looks really cool. And, you know, our our, our staff will then take them through that journey and bring them bring them into the game uh, when we see a new family come in for example like pokemon um, we run pokemon learn to play events on a weekly basis through our pokemon club saturday mornings you come in and there's 30 to 50 kids that are under the age of 10 with their moms and dads and that's critical moms and dads when they when we get the buy-in from the, from the moms especially that's huge for us you know moms accept us we'll teach some of the moms how to how to play Pokemon. Some of the other moms, you know, we've got the coffee clutch table that they'll solve all the world's problems, but they feel great about the way that we engage their kids. We'll put trained staff out on the tables and then we'll do that 
introduction. It doesn't matter what game it is. If you come in and you're interested in Warhammer 40K, we've got our go-to players that we can say, hey, Brenda, would you mind teaching this young gentleman how to play Warhammer 40K today? And those customers love that game so much. They're, they're the true fans of the game. And when we can enable that interaction, we become that cool person or that cool entity that introduced them to the game. Even if we aren't as knowledgeable as the players they're playing with, we're that gatekeeper, so to speak, that let them in. And that type of relationship lasts a lifetime in many cases. For sure. And, you know, it's so important to get the the kids into these games, you know, to keep the games thriving and going and to keep the game stores in business. So it's great that you have this outlet and it's appealing to the mothers and the fathers of these kids to continue, you know, to grow these games. And I did see on your website that you, you know, offer these kids events. And I was curious, what have you noticed has been the most popular amongst not only the kids, but the parents as well? Across the board, Pokemon, by far. It's a common language for three generations now, and it's something that mom and dad grew up with, so there's some level of fondness there and understanding. And there's always that, you know, you see a dad, oh, I used to play Pokemon, he puffs his chest out, I've got my my kids here, we're going to teach him how to play. And when the kids can sit down and school dad, that that's fun to watch, but most of the dads really do enjoy that when their kids are able to do it. One of the things that we have to be really careful with is that competitive scene. It can actually be a major detriment to community growth. We see it a little bit more with Yu-Gi-Oh! and Magic than we do with Pokemon, where you know we've got these older players who are very good players. They're extremely knowledgeable about the game. They're extremely knowledgeable about the cards, the entire ecosystem of the play experience but they've got this 14-year-old kid who's come in, he's cobbled together a deck or he put together, you know, bought his own commander deck and they school him. And what we see happen then is if you can't make it fun to win, then that kid never comes back again. And those players tend to be the same guys that'll say, hey, you know, why aren't there any more players around? We have to teach players at all levels that their conduct does affect the quality of the people who get into the game and the long-term viability of their game. It's the balance of the casual and competitive. Is that correct? Being able to have both options, but especially when introducing a new player, you don't want them having to deal with the competitive aspect right off the bat because that could be a deterrence to even want to continue. That's right. You know, there, Pro Tour qualifiers, the League Challenges, League Cups for, for, for Pokemon, the YCSs for, for Yu-Gi-Oh! That's where, you know, we roll up our sleeves, we put the cards down, and we play, for lack of a better term, we play to win. And, and that's great as long as everybody at, that, at those tables knows it. But Friday Night Magic, Saturday Morning Pokemon League, stuff like that, you can be playtesting and stuff, but that spirit of the game, as Pokemon calls it, is extremely critical across the board. doesn't matter what the game is. If it's not fun for somebody in the experience, it's no longer a game, and we've defeated our entire effort of putting fun on the table. And it's interesting you mentioned with the affinity people have for playing Pokemon. Now, growing up for me, I, I was born in 1988, and I remember playing, well, not playing, but I, I had some of the cards uh, for Pokemon, and we never really had any play scene for Pokemon. And one of the other game stores I talked to, uh, I believe it was Blade Gaming out in Virginia, they kind of said the same thing to me and that, you know, people love collecting and buying uh, Pokemon, but not necessarily on the playing side. And I was curious if that had continued out throughout the years now. And to hear from your side of the the aisle here that it's a popular game to play and, and you've seen that growth throughout the store. I, I'm curious as to what you may be doing differently than potentially other stores throughout the country might not have grasped onto to make Pokemon a viable play game experience. There's a couple of things. Um, first of all, Pokemon sells itself. It's the strongest commercial brand on the planet. It's stronger than the mouse. It's stronger than Nike, stronger than the NBA or NFL. So everybody knows Pokemon. So they've done a great job of that. But for growing new player base, we've got to make it fun first. And so, you know, where we what where we win with with that is understanding the mindset of that seven to ten year old is a way different than that twelve to fifteen year old who's hyper competitive. We make it fun for them. We give it to them in smaller bite sized pieces. We add extra activities in for you know when 
when the intention span isn't there and they want to go do a coloring page or a word search or play another game, different type of game, we offer that as well. And we give that to them in a semi-structured environment, similar to a classroom, only a lot looser. But they know that they come in, they have to check in, we get them into that habit of what they need to do and some of them go on to the to become tournament players others will just play casually for the rest of their lives and quite honestly most of those are better customers over the long term and you know i've because i do love playing casually and competitively so i dabble in both and i've definitely noticed a difference in terms of the gameplay that you run into and having played sports growing up i have a competitive nature but I also, as I get older, just like the casual competitive, I guess you could say, but you notice when you're playing against competitive players, it can sometimes almost take the fun out of it sometimes, because even now, if I play in a competitive event, I actually don't mind whether I win or lose. I still, it's more fun for me just to play. So I was curious with that competitive aspect in mind, and the challenges that may come about that, what do you see in terms of the competitive side of things maybe influencing a undesirable outcome for play in the store, whether it be, you know, overly competitive and, and it's taking away from the fun aspect of it? We see a couple different things. We, we see it really evolves around or revolves around the maturity level of the player and it doesn't have anything to do with their age or, or how good of a player they are but it's their understanding of what the game is really about you know we've got the guys who really want to have hey i want the biggest prize package possible and you know i i gotta win it all and if they can't interact with the people that are around them it's no fun to play with them so players kind of shun them and over time you know, the events that they tend to, to show up at kind of dwindle. Now, when we talk about major events, when there's a, you know, a thousand people interested in it, we don't see it as much. But at the local level, that can have a lot of impact. On the opposite side, we've got situations like I have with my Yu-Gi-Oh guys. They are world-class Yu-Gi-Oh players. They are some of the best individuals on the planet competitively. But they also understand that, hey, a new kid comes in. Some of the guys, you know, one of my one of my local guys, Michael, he'll he'll he may crush him in three turns or four turns. But you know what he'll do then? He'll use that the rest of that 40 minute round and he will teach that kid. He'll help him take his deck apart. He'll talk about what he's doing. They may even give him his other deck and let him play backwards. And over time, those those players will adopt each other. And they'll bring those younger players into the fold. And a lot of those kids will transition into semi-competitive and competitive players because they have friends at the table. And that's, that's what the big difference is, is the, the mature players understand that need to build community. The immature players or those that are in it for the business or the, the power trip, they're a detriment to the game. And you pretty much hit the nail on the head. It's it's the, the teaching aspect too. I've played many people who are much better than I am at Magic, for example. And it's the ability to communicate with them afterwards, to, you know, ask, what did I do wrong? What would you would have done better? To be able to have that back and forth to discuss it afterwards rather than somebody who, you know, has no personality with the game afterwards. It's purely just a, a cutthroat thing for them. And, you know, having the ability to have the camaraderie afterwards, I think definitely goes a long way. So that's a very great point you brought up. Yeah. And, and competitive players, if there was a way we could teach them to, to ask that question or to offer that advice in a positive, constructive way, you know, that those, those three words, Hey man, if you'd have done this, maybe let's take a look at your deck. How can I help you? How can I help you is really a thought process that actually will improve the quality of play throughout the, the local community. And then when you go outside into the real world, so to speak, you know, you see that when you've got a good, strong local community, those players do really well at those larger events as well. Absolutely. And what type of numbers are you seeing for events, whether it be casual or competitive, like in term, like you hold an event, what is the average like number of players you tend to see? It depends on the event. Like we go through magic. Our commander nights are our best attended. 
One of our locations will seat between 50 and 60. The others will seat in the mid-20s to 30s. Uh, the cafe is up in Door County, which is a smaller community. We'll see a dozen or so there on peak nights. Pokemon is our big one. Um, our Saturday morning Pokemon clubs across the board are seating anywhere from 20 to 70 kids every Saturday morning in, in the Green Bay and even up in the Sturgeon Bay and Appleton markets. Yu-Gi-Oh! is mid-size in the 30s or so for the for the events. And then the other type of games we have are scattered all over the place, but those are our bigs. Okay. And when it comes to pre-release style events, so I'm only familiar with that from a Magic the Gathering standpoint. I know some other games have that. What is that whole process like? Because I ask uh, the game stores I interview this question, and I'm always fascinated by it because it always seems to be a little bit different. And so I was curious what Gnome Games outlook is with this and the the process involved with setting up that type of event because they're very popular ones probably some of my favorite so i'm curious how you go about this with your staff the big thing we do with the pre-release events especially are we we try to make those special events we always theme them in some way and we're just we're just getting our our balls rolling out of out of COVID. Um, I've got a lot of new staff who doesn't understand the big pre-release feel of things. And and when there's a hundred people in the store, some of them get a little bit freaked out. But we've we've managed to deal with that. But like Lord of the Rings, um, what we did is, and it's, sometimes it's really small things. Everybody who played in our Lord of the Rings pre-releases got a gold-looking metal Lord of the Rings ring, and they were invited to the Fellowship of the Gnome. So it's it's nothing big, but by doing those little tiny tchotchke things, um, we've done things like spaghetti dinners and pizza dinners and and all sorts of stuff. And and I look around at the stores around us; those that have have watched us grow and or have come up behind us will kind of mirror what we do or do it in their own way, and that's fantastic. That's what we try to do with those pre-releases. It's not competitive anymore. Um, we used to do win a boxes and stuff like that. Those those days are pretty much gone. We learned that, you know, that's probably not in our best interest to grow the community. And we run, every store now runs a learn to play pre-release as well. So you can come in. We have a lot of families that will engage in that where they'll come in. Everybody will get their their pre-release kit. We'll spend an hour or so helping them build decks and learn the basics of the game if they don't. And then they'll play a couple of casual matches just to play. So it's that learning experience because we know that they're going to come back later and, and play again. You know, a lot of them right now, with the releases, pre-releases, the emphasis used to be on standard play. Standard magic around in our area is not very healthy. We've got a very strong commander community, and then the fringes, you know, we'll see Pioneer because people don't like standard, so they'll shift over to Pioneer and some Popper and stuff like that. But those, those, the big focus on those pre-release events is, hey, this is special. We get together as a community. Here it is. We get to share the excitement, the cracking packs, and having fun. I really like, Pat, that you have for pre-release the ability to teach people who are new to the game, because as we both know, Magic the Gathering is, is very complicated. It's it's not the easiest game to learn, but it's quite exciting once you've learned it and you play. How did that come about? When did you decide, okay, I think this is something we need to do, because that's something very unique to your store, and we can get into some other unique aspects of your store. And old stories to go to did a, you know, learn to play type thing on Sundays, but never focused around the pre-release, which is really unique to me. And so I'm curious when you thought about implementing that, like what what was the turning point that you said, you know what, this is something we need to try? A couple of years ago, I had some of my Saturday afternoon staff. We used a long time ago when, when those midnight pre-releases and that's, that's something I kind of miss and I really don't miss. <laughs> but when we had those midnight pre-releases, I would do. I would always work that midnight, and then we always did a breakfast pre-release as well, where we, we serve breakfast, and then I'd go home and take a nap. And some of my staff said, "Hey, you know, I'm having families come in and they see the excitement, but they're scared to play. What can we do?" And and we said, "Well, at that time, um, I think we had the starter decks then that you could sell them. So we did like that little starter jack deck challenge, and it evolved out of that, but." When people can come into a facility and see the excitement that a store full of people has and everybody's doing the same thing 
and enjoying that same property, whether it's Magic Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, or whatever, 40K this weekend with Leviathan. That's where there's an energy and everybody wants to belong to something big. You know, that power of fandom is really all that we have going on. You know, the gameplay is great, but when we want to have energy as a community, we've got to develop that group energy. And that happens most effectively at those pre-releases. So that's, you know, and, and we've got the brand behind it as well. So that's that's where that evolved from. And one of the things that I've learned is that my staff is all a lot smarter than I am. So I need to listen to them for the most part. And, you know, when they say, hey, I'd like to try this, if we can put it the, together the idea, we empower them. And, and that worked. I was actually just going to ask, it seems like you empower your staff to pretty much take the lead. They'll come to you if they need your guidance or your approval on something, but you seem to definitely let go of the reins a little to let them help shape and grow gnome games yeah we try to you know it's it's i'm a retired master sergeant so i'm used to when i say something i expect it to happen what we what i learned a long time ago in the retail world is if i'm a slave driver or give my staff a bad environment or don't listen to them and empower them i'm not going to have them as staff and they could be very great retail salespeople or or whatever but by giving them that opportunity, they have a sense of ownership in what we do and what we've come become part of the family. And it's really important to our success. That's excellent. What else would you say is unique about Gnome Games? Um, so far, there's been a couple of things like we've talked about that I have found unique from my own personal perspective from what I've seen here on Long Island. But if you were to, from a branding standpoint, what are some other things that make your store unique from, from your vantage point? We are, we take every opportunity possible to get in front of the community outside the gaming world. It's very important for our long-term growth and success to make the community aware of us. So we do silly things like we sponsor racetracks and race cars. Um, We've got dirt tracks in the area. Occasionally I'll I'll get crazy and say, hey, hey, you know, can can I drive? But we do a kid's day at at, uh, one of the racetracks where we race big wheels down the front speedway. What does that have to do with gaming? Almost nothing other than we're seen as supporting that segment of the community. We work with semi-pro and pro football or pro pro sports teams. I got to be careful how we say that. But if we can, well, if we can get involved with that level of, of things, like, for example, we, we work very closely with the local indoor football team, the Green Bay Blizzard, and we've got a 20-year a relationship of working with them and doing cool stuff. So we'll do a superhero night with the Blizzard where I'll get to go out and MC and, and have a little bit of fun with them and provide them the support that we need. And then they'll come out for a family game night beforehand or afterhand where you can play with those athletes at a level that, that you can normally not interact with them. We also provide educators with uh, a lot of support, whether it be games for their classroom where we'll coordinate with us and manufacturers, or we'll actually go out and teach them how to use games as part of the curriculum. I've been an adjunct faculty at the university and helped them with uh, games and education programs. And so we do that. Anytime and anywhere we can get out in front of the public outside of the store. And that's the key. You know, in the store, we've got the fan base. We've got the magic players and the Pokemon players and everything else. But we need to get outside the store however we can in a positive manner and interact with the community in ways that we're comfortable with and they're comfortable with having us. You're creating unique ways to spread word of mouth and it's it's, it's a very smart idea. You're looking at other avenues that may not be game store specific that funnel back into the stores. I think it's a very smart outreach idea that you've been implementing. It's a lot of work and you've got to have excellent staff to do it. Um, taking the time to train the staff and give them the resources that they need is key to that entire process. Yeah, I was going to say, it does seem like a lot of work to do what it is you're doing. So how many employees do you have to help facilitate this, whether it be amongst the stores, whether it be you know scheduling games and whatnot? How many employees do you currently have? Currently, we've got uh, between 35 and 38 employees. I'd have, I'd have to check. It's summer, so our board game cafe is a little bit heavy on servers and, and floor staff in that 35 to 40 people range. Our key staff, we do have one educator on staff that during the school year, they're specifically tasked with going out to, to school game nights a couple days a week. And, and my senior managers as well, um, they'll step in. All of our staff 
is more than just retail staff. They're expected to be able to interact in the store and if necessary, out of the store at a professional level. Um, and we work on that training a lot when we're, we're teaching them how to interact with customers and their, their knowledge, not necessarily of the game mechanics themselves, but of how to quickly open up a game, teach somebody how to play it and interact with those people in a positive manner. Do you, do you have any of your employees who specialize in anything in particular for the store or does the store specialize in anything in particular? And it seems like you have various employees to do specific things. So that I'm imagining is a huge help. It's a huge help. And we have something internally where we call them product champions. So if you've got a pat or like I've got some guys down in my Appleton stores that are really passionate about Warhammer 40K and Kill Team and stuff. So okay, guys, you guys are my product champions for Warhammer and 40K. And their job, in addition to all their retail duties, is they're the guys who get to assemble and, and put together the miniature stuff. Um, they run the kill team things. And we also rely on them for product knowledge because there's so many games out there. There might be some people in the world that can manage them all really well, but I can't. And so you know, they'll say, hey, you know, Pat, this this new thing, this Leviathan thing, it's going to be big. You might want to go into it pretty heavy or or they're talking. You know, I got some guys that are really into um, some of the indie publishers and stuff like that. Hey, did you hear about this cool thing? You know, and they'll bring that information back to us and we'll use it. And if it makes sense, we'll we'll bring it in. But those product champions and the ability for our staff to communicate on an almost instant level with us, um, we've built some some infrastructure in that allows it to do that has been extremely important in our success. You know, Pat, as I listened to what you were saying there, the first thought that came to my mind that I know a lot of business owners have trouble doing is ceding control to others that, that work for them. And you don't seem to have a problem with it at all. Was that always the case for you that you just were able to be like, okay, I'm going to hand this over to so-and-so to to take over. So that frees me up to do other things. Because as I'm sure you're aware, there's a lot of business owners who have trouble giving up any control over things and that kind of hinders their growth. It seems to come easy to you. That's just my guess. But how do you deal with that? Because you don't seem to, it doesn't seem to be an issue for you. It's evolved over time. But the one thing that I've learned a long time, even before I was in the business, is you've got to trust the people you work with. At the end of the day, I'm the guy who writes the checks. We've got to make sure the bills are paid and, and all that kind of stuff. But if I can't trust that they're going to clean the bathroom and you know sell things properly and, and do all the things that they do, my business can never grow beyond me. And understanding that it, in order for the business to grow, I've got to let these other people grow. And my job is to fertilize and help them grow in what they do and see how I can make them blossom, that's that's my real job. And, and once I understand that, you know, there's there are times when I will get, I'll be the biggest control freak in the world when certain things happen. You know, when, when we get shipments in and they're not processed fast enough, I'll be out there cutting boxes open and moving stuff around in the warehouse. But by understanding that I'm that guy that helps the business grow by fostering these other people, that's where that level of, you don't ever lose control, but giving up some of the responsibility is, is what it's all about. Understood. And what would you say is the, the most challenging business item at this point in time, whether it be in the business as a whole, whether it be your own business, if you wanted to talk about that, I was curious what would be the most challenging item right now? Currently in the gaming world, it's the changes in distribution. The distribution model of five years ago is no longer functional with basically going to straight distribution for purchases of everything. Uh, the ordering cycles uh, have gotten a lot longer. Our need to have product available in our warehouses or in our stores for a lot longer periods of time is a reality. If we don't have it back stock, we're not going to see it until the next shipment and ordering enough stock for that in between publications or understanding the cycle of magic that it's it's a fire and forget you know once it's gone it's gone how much do we want at the end that entire process has become one of our largest challenges in management and you had mentioned earlier when we first started the podcast that one of your main things that you do at this point in time is is the ordering process and i can imagine it seems complicated like i 
personally, it overwhelms me the thought of it if I was having to do that. How do you know exactly what to get? Because I know you, you'll have new and returning customers and you kind of, you know, I'm sure observe patterns and behaviors of those customers. So how are you able to make a, you know, educated, calculated guess to determine how much to order so that you're not, you know, ordering too much or too little? And I know you're kind of at the mercy as well on how much the distributors will give. Well, what, what we have is we have three sides of that. First of all, we have the internal side where we have our tools. Um, we've got a fairly robust point of sale system with a lot of good data acquisition. So I can literally pop into my, my company from anywhere in the world and say, how many copies of Castle Panic have I sold in the last week, month, year, whatever? And I can see trends with that on key lines. And, and that information is crucial in when we go outside and we talk to publishers and distributors and say, hey, you know, why can't I get Castle Panic for you? So I, I may call Fireside and say, hey, you know, I've been selling Castle Panic at a pretty good clip here. I need some more, but I don't see it at Alliance or ACD or, or GTS. What's the deal? And they may say to me, hey, Pat, um, I see that I got a thousand units sitting somewhere. Um, let me see what's going on. And when that happens once, we'll say, okay, well, we'll let you get it to a distributor. When it happens twice, guess what? I don't go to distrib distributors for it. I go to, to the publisher and I say, Fireside, I want 10 cases because that's what's, what I'm going to need for six months. And we build that relationship with the publisher. On the CCG side of things, um, we have to learn how the patterns work. And we work on in improving our relationship with distribution to increase mm -hmm. our allocations on product lines. Everybody would love to have a million dollars worth of product, but if it's not going to sell, it's a dangerous thing. And that goes to the dis distribution side as well. So like right now, we're ordering for the next set of Pokemon. Who knows what's even in the set? Uh, Yu-Gi-Oh is even worse. We, sometimes we only have a set name with absolutely no knowledge as to what's in the set. But we have to speculate. And that's where the data, the historical data becomes important. The final part of that is talking to the customers and listening to them. You know, we have our key people out there and we have some data collection tools internally for when somebody comes in and asks about a product. But is there any buzz about the product? You know, if there's this new trading card game out there that we've heard nothing about, I may not even bring it in until afterwards. I, I can handle missing a, a release if I've heard nothing about it and we'll catch it on the second set. Whereas we got people talking about it before the company's talking about, like we've heard with Lorcana, you know, there we're, we're going to go in, we're going to buy a house or two worth of stuff if we can get it. And in addition to buying that sealed product, whether it be, you know, a brand new product, you know, an existing product that may be, you know, a month old, do you also deal with like selling like the singles of cards as well as online to supplement what you do for business in the store? We use singles as, a, we look at it as a community service. So we provide the community with a small amount of, of singles out of our warehouse um, for Pokemon Magic and Yu-Gi-Oh. It's not a serious part of our business, but we've been asked for it enough. And there are other people that do a, a better job. And sadly, when we look at the singles world, it's the most ugly relationship out there. We're in direct competition with the people who provide the best platform out there, you know, with TCG Player. So for us, it's not a very important part of our business. Same with the online store. We we do have our online store. We do sell through through that portal. Um, mostly it goes to fan fanboys or people we meet out at conventions. Um, we also do a lot of institutional sales through that to libraries, schools, and stuff like that. That's a hidden part of our business and the services that we provide. Very cool. And from the store itself, as we wrap up here, if I were to come into the store, like how would you describe the store to somebody listening right now? Like the store's theme, how it looks like, what, what type of visual can you, you paint a little bit of picture of, of what the store looks like? It depends on the stores. The flagship stores, like my Appleton stores, is huge open space. And it, it almost feels like a corporate store. You know, there's everything is, is spit polished. The games are aligned nicely. They're organized. We've got the organized play space in the back that says, hey, what's going on at the back of the store to draw you into the, the facility? And you're going to see some family-friendly things. You'll see our Haba line and some of our other kids' games lines right there up in front along with our, our jigsaw puzzle wall. But you'll also see prominently 
the D and D line and the Magic line and the Pokemon the Yugos and the and the Warhammer. So you'll know you're in a game store, but it it's that pristine, large mall like experience. So think think some of your higher end retail stores for clothing and stuff like that. Nice and brightly lit. We go for a totally different approach, though, for our board game cafe. It's located in a high-volume tourist community, where, and it's in a historic district. So you come in, and, and you've got the 20-foot-tall ceiling with the hammered metal and the granite floors and the, and the polished granite coffee espresso bar and this huge game library and all the retail and then small, cozy wooden tables, you know, and, and you're greeted probably with the espresso machine squirting and stuff so it's a very different experience what we try to do in all the locations is give the customer something that they're going to experience there that's memorable that they're not going to see anywhere else so whether it's the the life-size gnome statues or dragons on the wall or the music that we're playing something or even just the smells that we have coming from the kitchen you know with the fresh baked cookies and stuff something that's going to trigger a memory enhancer and when we can do that then we know we've done a good thing that sounds like a lot of fun especially the cafe aspect i'm sure that was not something that uh, came about overnight i'm sure that was something you had planned for uh that's an entire another another talk we originally were going to move a store up in that community um, with the help of the actual community itself and the facility that they we're talking about wasn't going to work for us. And literally across the street, this property was there. And I walked through it and I, I looked at my wife and she looked at me and we had talked a little bit about board game cafes. And we both said almost simultaneously, this would be a great cafe. And six months later, we had opened a board game cafe. So I love the whole idea. Hopefully one of these days I'll make it out to Wisconsin so I could check it out. I would love to see it. It's a gorgeous property. And to wrap up here, Pat, my last question is, what is one of your, like, whether it be a dream, whether it be, you know, an aspiration, what do you see for the future of known games? What would you like to see happen? We're in the middle of transition, transitioning from an LLC to an S corporation so we can go to an employee stock ownership program. I'm not getting any younger. At some point in time, I would really like to retire in a way that's a positive influence on the community. When we look at game stores, traditionally what happens to them is they sell out to somebody, um, occasionally employee complete ownership, or they just kind of go away. And what we want to do is we want to allow our employees to purchase and control the company after I am no longer here. And I want to be able to do that in a way that allows them to do it in a positive manner. So we're going to continue to grow with a smart growth model. As we mature a little bit more, we'll see my employees become the owners. And hopefully someday I'll just be working for them as a, you know, you've heard the Walmart greeters. I'll be the Gnome Games greeter. (laughs) That's great, Pat. I I love what you're doing with the store. I love the plans that you have laid out and how you operate. It's been a joy getting to speak with you. I've really enjoyed hearing about the store and definitely plan to come uh, check out the store in the very near future. So thank you very much, sir, for coming on the show today. Thank you. And um, if there's anything else we can help any retailer with, um, we do retailer boot camps as well. So we want to help wherever we can. Definitely. I'll be sure to pass that along to any stores I talk to in the near future, as well as my own. Again, thanks again, Pat. It was, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us today on another episode of the Matchslip podcast. If you would like to join our newsletter, you could sign up at thematchslip.com slash newsletter, where I share reviews of the stores I visit in person. Additionally, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail that you'd like to have a question featured on an uh, upcoming episode of the Matchlip, feel free to do so. You can do so at anchor.fm slash thematchlip, and we will catch you all on the next interview. Take care. Mm-hmm.